Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've embarked upon our anxiety and depression massive literature review. Our goal here is to assemble, uh, using maybe about 5,000 plus sources, lectures, uh, books, peer-reviewed papers, etc., uh, all the possible treatments for anxiety and depression. So to find out more about this effort, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is Ben Z. Stenger. Uh, he's the Hannah Wise Professor in Cancer Research at University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to talk about his work with uh, pancreatic cancer. So, Ben, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've you know, from what I've heard, you know, thankfully I haven't experienced, but I guess pancreatic cancer, unfortunately, is like one of the, I guess, one of the worst cancers there. It has like one of the worst uh, clinical outcomes. Is that right? Uh, it's it's really a devastating cancer, um, horrific prognosis, five year survival in the around the one in ten range. So yeah, it's a well, big problem. How did you get uh, interested in this and involved? What's your history like? So I'm a physician scientist, which means that um, I trained as a medical doctor uh, as well as a researcher, and I actually don't have any formal training in cancer biology. My my background as a as a postdoctoral fellow was in developmental biology, but I've obviously always been interested in cancer from a clinical perspective um, and patients that I've met. And it turns out that there are a lot of connections between uh, cancer biology and the biology of the embryo and developmental biology. Um, They both uh, exhibit a lot of growth. They're important cell-cell interactions. There's movement of cells as in metastasis. So um, it became kind of a natural area for me to go into when I started my own laboratory. So what are the main types of uh, pancreatic cancer? What are they called and where do they occur? Yeah, so the major type and the type you were referring to before that, um, that is, is bad is called uh, adenocarcinoma. So it's a, um, the pancreas is located kind of in the center of the body, um, a little bit towards the back. 
and it has two main components. It has an exocrine function, and the exocrine function is to release all of the enzymes that help us digest our foods. And it has an endocrine compartment, which is um, the part that secretes insulin and uh, uh, keeps us from getting diabetes. So the majority of pancreatic cancers arise in that exocrine compartment, the adenocarcinomas, and they're the ones with the poor prognosis. A smaller fraction, maybe 10% of pancreatic cancers arise in that endocrine portion. They're referred to as neuroendocrine tumors, and they in general have a better prognosis, although they can also be quite nasty. Yeah, the pancreas, when I've seen it, it's weird. It has, I guess, a head and a tail. It's, how long is it, like six to eight inches? Um, maybe, like maybe yeah, maybe a little bit, a little bit longer than that. But yeah, it has an odd shape. It it has a kind of an odd appearance. It's it's buried deep inside the body, so it's not something that one would feel even on a physical exam, typically an abdominal exam. And that's probably one of the reasons that it's so hard to detect. It's it's not like um, we can just do an, a simple exam and find a find an early cancer. Uh, we have to do some type of imaging to look inside the body to to find it. How do people know that they have a problem? Like what, what do they typically feel that leads them to go to their, their doctor? You know, often very little until it's at an advanced stage. Sometimes, and I don't want anyone in your audience to get worried um, excessively, but sometimes the symptoms are very nonspecific, just indigestion that won't go away, that persists. Things like weight loss should be uh, unintentional weight loss should be a cause for concern, and um, often if the pancreas arise, if the pancreatic tumor arises in the head of the pancreas, it can block the bile ducts of the liver, and that can lead to jaundice or yellowing of the skin and the eyes, and that would would of course be a sign to seek medical attention and, and a likely sign that the cancer is somewhat advanced. Why would it affect the bile ducts of the liver? Is it is it grow big enough with the tumor that it pushes on them and blocks them, or why? Exactly right. So it's just a it's just a question of anatomy. The liver drains its bile into the intestine by going through the head of the pancreas, and so if the tumor is just as it's growing, it it is uh, abutting that tube. It'll block the flow of the bile and and cause a backup. Tumors in the tail. You mentioned there's a head of the pancreas and the tail of the pancreas. The tail of the pancreas is on the other side of the body, the left side of the body, and um, that wouldn't cause jaundice. So does the bile literally go through part of the pancreas or just it flows ne- next to it? it? It goes right through it. There's a, there's a little tube. It's, uh, it's called the bile duct and um, it flows right through it. There's actually a lot of things that, that go either through or immediately adjacent uh, to the pancreas. Um, the bile duct, uh, blood vessels, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a little bit of a grand central station there. Has anyone noticed um, people that have their, um, their gallbladders removed? Does it affect their uh, likelihood of getting pancreatic cancer? Or if they do, does it make it better or worse? Any data on that? No, uh, there's no, no data that I know, but I think um, anecdotally that there isn't a relationship between having gallbladder surgery and pancreatic cancer. The, the, the biggest risk factor for pancreatic cancer is, is smoking. There are a number of other uh, risk factors as well, but a lot of it just has to do with, with um, bad luck. Oh, so people don't really have any insight into why they'll get pancreatic cancer or not? That's correct. There are, there are some cases, um, maybe up to 10% of cases that are part of familial syndromes. So you may have heard of um, the, the BRCA genes, the BRCA breast cancer genes. 
So individuals who carry mutations in their germline, in their family, with either of those genes, the BRCA1 or the BRCA2 genes, or other similar genes, have an increased risk not only of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, but also pancreatic cancer. So those are individuals who, who carry those mutations in their family that we do pay extra attention to. And there are a few other um, syndromes that are similar to that. So why is the, um, the clinical outcome so bad for pancreatic cancer? Is it that, is it just, does it metastasize a lot? Or, I mean, is it particularly aggressive? Like what are the problems with pancreatic cancer in general? Yeah, it's a perfect storm of a bunch of things. One we already mentioned is that it's, it tends to be detected uh, late. Um, it doesn't form a bump on the, on the skin or the surface. Um, and if it doesn't block the bile duct, for instance, it can grow to quite a significant size uh, before it's noticed. The second uh, is, is exactly what you mentioned. It has a tendency to metastasize. We, we think that these tumors metastasize quite early uh, in, their, in their progression. And for any cancer, it's much more difficult to treat it when it's throughout the body than when it's localized, when it could be uh, removed by surgery. So only about one in five patients who are initially diagnosed can go uh, to have a resection. And many of those individuals will, will have a recurrence later on. And then the final part of, the, of this, this perfect storm triad is um, we don't really have good drugs. There have been some improvements. The chemotherapy regimens that we use have, have improved survival, but not nearly well enough. And many of the success stories we've had in cancer and other types of cancer, such as immunotherapy or precision drugs, we haven't been able to use or haven't figured out yet how to use them effectively in pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I've heard that, I guess, because of its placement in the body, a biopsy is incredibly invasive and surgery to resect the pancreas or parts of it is incredibly invasive as well, right? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It's it's invasive. Not I, I don't know that I'd say incredibly invasive. We can access the pancreas clinically through a procedure called endoscopic ultrasound. So this is a very similar to an upper endoscopy, which many people have. Um, it, it takes a look at the stomach and people who have, for instance, acid reflux may get that procedure. And because of its location in the body, the pancreas is directly behind the stomach. So one can often biopsy uh, a suspicious lesion in the pancreas through the, the back wall, through the posterior wall of the stomach and gain tissue that way. Surgery is, um, it is a big surgery. The surgical approach depends on where the tumor is located, whether it's in the head of the pancreas or the tail of the pancreas. Surgical techniques have gotten a lot better, but yes, it can um, have a lot of morbidity associated with it. It can leave um, patients with diabetes, for example. So that makes it hard to treat uh, and to diagnose. 
when they do a, um, a resection, are they taking out part of the pancreas or are you taking out the whole thing? I mean, how could someone live without it, for instance? Well, usually the, the goal is to try to take out as, as little as possible, but get um, the entire tumor if possible. So depending on, again, whether it's in the head or the tail, a distal pancreatectomy would be performed to remove the tumor from the tail of the pancreas. A more complex procedure, what's often referred to as a Whipple uh, procedure, is often used for a, a tumor in the head of the pancreas. And in either case, there's a risk of diabetes, but there's often uh, enough pancreas left behind um, that that doesn't happen. Of course, one can, one can treat diabetes by giving insulin and other drugs. And um, the exocrine function of the pancreas, if a lot of the pancreas is removed, um, is also important. And so a sufficient amount of removal can lead to exocrine insufficiency or malabsorption. And that uh, can also be treated with, with oral medication. Oh, so here again, is there any correlation between people that have um, type 1 diabetes with a developed type 2 and pancreatic cancer? It's a great question, and it's an area of, um, of evolving science. Um, there is definitely a correlation between diabetes and the development of pancreatic cancer, but we're not 100% sure what's cause and what's effect. And in fact, the leading science suggests that in cases of individuals who have both pancreatic cancer and diabetes, it's actually the cancer that's causing the diabetes, not the other way around. That's something that the cancer is doing in the pancreatic environment is leading to, to diabetes. But we don't really know. It's, a, it's an area of ongoing investigation. Um, is there any immunotherapy being contemplated for pancreatic cancer? Uh, so, so this gets into, you know, what, what the broader community is trying to do to, to understand, um, understand this disease and, and get better treatments. So immunotherapy is really revolutionizing uh, cancer therapy, but for uh, pancreatic cancer, it really hasn't had much benefit yet. There are a lot of clinical trials. There are some promising regimens, um, but so far we haven't figured out how to use the immunotherapy drugs that we currently have or how to develop new ones that could work well. You know, when you think about cancer, you know, different laboratories, different groups will work on different aspects of cancer. Some will be, some will be focused on the response to DNA damage, which is associated with the BRCA mutations. Some will be interested in metastasis or immunotherapy. Um, it's kind of like that old um, diagram of, of the blind men looking at the elephant and trying to describe it by, by touching different parts of it. So, so I think we in the community and me in my lab, we, we try to just look at the elephant and um, take opportunities wherever they come. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what's your specific research about? So it's, it's, in all of, it's in all of those areas. So we have an active um, area of investigation regarding the immune microenvironment with, with colleagues here. We're trying to understand why immunotherapy hasn't worked very well in this tumor and how to get it, get it to work better. We think that there are a number of barriers to immunotherapy working across cancer. And one of the predominant ones uh, that is probably a feature of pancreatic cancer is a so-called immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment. And what that means is that as these tumors grow, they, they could potentially be recognized by the immune system because they have 
foreign elements that the immune system's job is to get rid of. But they are, the tumors are smart enough, if we can give them anthropomorphic features, they're smart enough to create a local environment that protects those immune cells from being able to recognize or reject the tumor. And so if we can understand what is it about the tumor cells that allows them to recruit this immunosuppressive microenvironment, then we can overcome it. And then the idea would be that the immunotherapy drugs that have proven so effective in other diseases would work for pancreatic cancer as well. Well, one thing I could tell you that might be a potential resource is um, it's probably like two years ago now, but I interviewed a scientist named Florencia McAllister. Mm-hmm. And they were studying pancreatic tumors and they said, um, I guess the localized microbiome of the pancreatic tumor was different from the microbiome of the surrounding healthy pancreas tissue. So there might be a clue there that the, again, and I know most people don't even think there is a pancreatic microbiome, but it does seem like there is, at least in her experimentation. And maybe that plays a role in uh, creating a microenvironment that keeps the immune system quiet. I don't know. Absolutely. No, I think it's an, again, it's an area, it's one of those areas of, of opportunity. Um, I know Florencia and others are trying to understand how the microbiome might affect the immune system, whether it's in the pancreas, that that is a, you know, an area of investigation, whether uh, microbes are actually making their way into the pancreas and into the, into the tumor bed, but it could be the microbiome in the gut, for example, that is causing metabolites to circulate throughout the body that have systemic effects on the immune system. And that's, an, that's a possibility as well. So I think there's a lot to be learned by um, studying immune biology in the setting of this very difficult to treat cancer. Histologically, you know, looking at the pancreatic tissue, where do the cancers seem to uh, occur? Do they occur in areas where there's the beta cells, again, that produce insulin, or do they stay away? Or you know, do sometimes they appear in the ducts or like, like what parts of the pancreas uh, do the tumors occur and why, if yeah. any reason, why yeah. can be found? Well, great, great question. So one of the paradigms of cancer development, cancer biology, is that all tumors develop through a multi-step process and through early lesions that are not cancer, but as they incur more and more mutations and more and more problems, work their way to cancer. So it's a progression to an invasive carcinoma. Uh, An example of that would be in the colon. Colon polyps or adenomas are precancers, and that's why we have people go for colonoscopy when they're when they're 50 and have those polyps removed before they can progress to cancer. So in the pancreas, it's the exocrine part of the pancreas. So either the duct cells or the acinar cells, the cells that are making the uh, digestive enzymes that are the cell of origin, the starting point. We don't know particularly which cell is responsible, but it's probably one of those two. And as mutations begin to occur in those cells, they develop precursor lesions that are known as PANINs. PANIN stands for pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia. And these are very similar to the types of polyps that develop in the colon, at least from a cancer biology perspective. So these PANIN lesions, they grow, they get more mutations, and eventually you have an invasive cancer. When someone does a biopsy of the pancreas, are they able to tell 
can they go backwards in time and kind of trace back to approximately when the cancer started or when these, um, you know, these growths would have started even at a benign stage? That's very hard to do. It's really hard to know how long has it been there and how long has what been there? How long has the precursor lesion or the tumor been there? People have tried mathematically to model how long it takes for a tumor to develop, but that relies on a lot of assumptions that are hard to to actually measure. The way that we know that Hannon lesions, for example, and there are other lesions that are risk factors as well, are likely precursors of pancreatic cancer is that when tumors are removed, one also often sees at the margins of the cancer of the histologic growth that is very disorganized and we would all agree is cancer, you can see these Pannon lesions right around the edges. And that happens quite reproducibly. So it's a pretty simple thing to infer um, that the Pannons were the precursor and the tumor arose from them. And we now have mouse models, uh, models that we work with a lot in my laboratory, as well as many others that have confirmed that. One can genetically engineer mice to develop pancreatic cancer um, and one sees sequentially the development of these pannon lesions before one sees the cancer. If we could backtrack and find out how old you know, a pancreatic cancer was, would that be helpful? I mean, if we did know that, what would that do? I, I'm not sure for a given individual uh, how helpful that would be. I think it would give us a better sense of what, what our time frame is, how, how fast does this cancer move? For instance, in, in the colon, we feel pretty comfortable um, that for individuals who have a colonoscopy and nothing is found, we can wait 10 years before repeating it. And for those where we do find a polyp, we can typically wait five years before repeating the colonoscopy. We think it takes that many years for something worrisome to develop. We don't know whether that's the case in the pancreas or not, because we just can't really follow things that well. And it may well be um, that things happen a lot faster um, than we could possibly imagine. And if that's the case, it just makes it that much more difficult to find the tumor early and uh, operate before it spreads. Has anyone, uh, you know, I'm sure some people have found pancreatic cancer early. In those cases, maybe there's very few, but why was it found early and was it able to create a better outcome for the patient? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the five-year survival rate for pancreatic cancer is currently about 10%. So, so one in 10. And those are almost all individuals in whom it was found early. And that is usually because of an incidental test, a CAT scan done for, for a kidney stone or something like that, where the lesion is found on the pancreas. So um, it certainly does happen but uh, it's, it's a very hard thing to define how we should be screening the entire population uh, because we just can't really do CAT scans on everyone every couple of years. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You said you had some mouse models. Do you have any like organoid, spheroid models that you're using as well? We're, we're, doing, we're doing both. Um, so the mouse models are, are great because they allow us to study all aspects of tumor biology. And in particular, if we want to study the immune system and how to get the immune system to work against the cancer, we need to do that in the setting of an immune system. And that's a lot easier to do in a mouse than it is in a dish with, with human cells, because of course, 
the immune system uh, has to be compatible with the cells that you're dealing with. We can't take a tumor sample from one individual and throw in immune cells from another individual and see how does a drug work because the immune system is primed already to recognize that as a foreign tissue. Um, so the organoid studies that we, we are doing are a little bit more focused on the cancer cells themselves rather than the microenvironment. And one of the goals there is to see what are specific mutations present in given tumor in a given tumor in a given organoid, and we can can we find drugs, new drugs that make that individual tumor now melt away. Promising hypotheses you're seeing in the literature or in collaboration with other scientists, you know, as it relates to pancreatic cancer, or is it it's just indeterminate and there's a very long way to go? No, no, I'm very optimistic. So I'm I'm optimistic in in uh, in at least a couple of areas. One is we've already been talking about is is immunotherapy, and there's no real reason in principle why immunotherapy couldn't be extraordinarily successful for pancreatic cancer. It's just a matter of figuring out the details, and so a lot of labs, a lot of work is going into trying to understand how do we overcome that immunosuppressive environment. Do we need new immunotherapy drugs because the ones that have proven so successful so far are good for tumors in other tissues, but the biology of the pancreas is a little different. So I really have a feeling that in the next few years, we'll have a lot more basic information that will allow us to take immunotherapy forward. Another area that I think is is really quite promising is metabolism. And by the way, everything I'm saying applies to pancreas, but it also applies to other tumors that are refractory to many kinds of therapy. And that's one of the reasons so many of us work in pancreatic cancer is so we feel that if, um, if we can make headway in this tumor type, it will spill over into other types of tumors. So metabolism is, is promising because these tumors tend to develop a microenvironment that is relatively deficient in oxygen and nutrients. Most cancers have a tendency to recruit lots of blood vessels, a process that's called angiogenesis, so that they can get all of the nutrients that they could possibly want to fuel their growth. But some tumors, including pancreatic cancers, have this paradoxical feature of their nutrient and oxygen deprived. We call it the arid microenvironment to liken it to a desert. And so the the principle there is that there are likely to be dependencies or mechanisms that the cancer cells have used to survive in this arid environment um, that normal cells don't need to use. And therein um, may lie some vulnerabilities, some pathways that the cancer cells absolutely need to survive this nutrient and oxygen deprivation. And we have some ideas about what some of those might be. What's the, uh, I don't know, in, in the pancreas, is it highly innervated? Does it have tons of blood supply to it? And when someone has cancer of the pancreas, is the blood supply, uh, you know, compromised big time? Like what, what's it look like before and after someone has pancreatic cancer? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the pancreas itself is quite um, well innervated and quite well vascularized. And it has to be um, because of all of those beta cells that are making insulin. So the beta cells are really in real time monitoring your blood sugar by the blood vessels that are passing through the islets of Langerhans and secreting insulin to make sure blood sugar stays in a, in a specific range. But when a tumor develops within that 
you know, the, the area of the tumor, the blood supply is compromised. There's a lot of fibroblasts, a lot of what's called stroma and, and matrix that fills the area of the tumor and excludes blood vessels from being there. So these tumors are rock hard, they're very hard, and they tend to be white. So they don't have the normal blush or the normal you know, reddishness of, of other tissues because they've excluded all of their blood vessels. Um, and that can compromise the circulation in other parts of the pancreas as well. But, but that's really a feature of the mm-hmm. tumor itself. Oh, you create, I guess, these, uh, like these dead spaces where, you know, if the head versus the tail, I'm sure it communicates a lot. So if you have a tumor, let's say in the center or anywhere along the path, the head and the tail may no longer be able, may, may no longer be able to connect and uh, interact and, and function properly. And so I guess the whole pancreas would start to have trouble after a while. That, that can happen. There can be called pancreatitis, where the ducts that secrete all of these enzymes that are used to digest food, they get blocked just the way as we were talking before, the bile duct can get blocked. And when that um, pancreatic juice backs up, that can cause a local inflammation or pancreatitis. Tumors are also prothrombotic, so they can promote blood clot formation. And so sometimes blood clots will form behind the pancreas and compromise the vasculature in that way. How about people that have had pancreatitis? Are they more likely to get pancreatic cancer? Does anyone understand the correlation there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So for the short answer is for most people who develop pancreatitis, let's say from a, from a gallstone or an other incidental uh, case of pancreatitis, the answer is no. But for um, individuals who have recurrent pancreatitis, particularly if it's from a familial gene, an inherited form of pancreatitis, yes, the risk goes way, way up. But for most cases of pancreatitis, there isn't really an increased risk from, say, having a gallstone. Oh, so some people that have pancreatitis, it's because they have a genetic history that's passed down to them? That's correct. That's correct. Those are relatively rare, but when they happen, when they have one of those uh, types of genes, they are at significantly increased risk of pancreatic cancer, and those individuals will uh, get screened uh, more often, just as those with the BRCA mutations uh, should be screened on a more regular basis. Oh, I didn't catch that before. So the people with BRCA1, I would think it would just relate to breast cancer, but it actually does relate to pancreatic cancer too? It absolutely does. So those individuals, you know, the the recommendations are are varying and an evolving topic, but those individuals who have a germline or an inherited mutation in BRCA1 or 2 or other related genes, particularly those who have had family members who have had pancreatic cancer, should seek some type of genetic counseling and potentially under, under a clinical uh, protocol, uh, undergo screening for pancreatic cancer in addition to, to breast and ovarian. And you realize they have like a double or a triple whammy affecting them. That's too bad. It's, it's, it's really horrible. And, you know, it's, it's a big issue for, for example, for those women who've undergone mastectomy, prophylactic mastectomy, um, and in some cases had ovaries removed as well, there is still this concern for pancreatic cancer. And, and many women are choosing to take that path. And, and I think that that is something that they need to attend to as well. Well, I don't know, if, again, if there's data on this, but women that do a mastectomy, preventative one or they take out their ovaries, do they have less of an incidence of cancer? Or, you know, once you have the BRCA1 mutation, you, you still have elevated risk no matter what you do. 
Well, I, I mean, this is not my area, but I think the risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer goes way, way down, of course, in those, in those tissues. But the, because these are mutations that are in every cell in the body, any cell in which the mutation can promote the formation of a cancer remains susceptible if they are left inside the body. And that, that mm-hmm. does include the pancreas. What's the best way for people to find out more uh, from you and your work? Where can they go to find out about you? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a number of really passionate organizations uh, that support pancreatic cancer research and patients. I'll shout out two of them. One is the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, or PANCAN, and the other is called the Luskarten Foundation. And these are wonderful resources, uh, not only for uh, researchers and research funding, um, but also for patients. They provide patient liaisons and services to help people who uh, have been newly diagnosed with this disease to um, navigate their options uh, for the cancer. We run a pancreatic cancer research center here at the University of Pennsylvania, and we have a, we have a website um, that has some information about uh, the tumor and about the kinds of research and clinical trials that we're doing uh, here at Penn. It's a really vibrant um, community. The pancreatic cancer research community is really dedicated and really, uh, we all sort of uh, talk to each other. You mentioned Florencia before, who I've known uh, for many years. Um, it's such a you know, great need to have improvements uh, in, this, in this type of cancer that the community really rallies around and um, shares lots of data, shares lots of information and collaboration. So it's, it's something that we're passionate about. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Well, very good. Well, Ben, thank you for coming and, uh, you know, providing all your knowledge. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.